Good morning. Stephen Fry is a man of many parts, a writer, actor, director, cultural icon for many. Some years back, in February 15, he was on a television program in Dublin, RTE produced, called The Meaning of Life. And he was asked by the host what he would say to God if he, Stephen Fry, had a chance. And this is what he said. I'd say, bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that's not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? End of quote. Stephen Fry is no believer in God. And by contrast, Job, who is the subject of the book that you've been looking at the last several weeks, is a believer in God who not just knows academically or theoretically the problem of pain and suffering and unjust suffering, innocent suffering, but he's someone who is wrestling with that experience and is also a believer in God. How does he cope? Well, let me recap on this short series that you've been looking at. I've done my homework, I've listened to all the talks, and I've been greatly encouraged, challenged, and edified, and terrified as I come now this morning to speak to you. But let me give you a recap as best I can. For those of you not familiar with the story, it starts with a a prosperous good man, and the evil one, the enemy of God, comes and says, this man follows you, he's loyal to you, he's obedient to you, he's, he's a f- trusted follower of, of, of God because you reward him. It pays him. And so God gives permission for catastrophe after catastrophe to fall upon him, losing his wealth and his family and even his health and well-being. And this catastrophic loss is by permission, and it's to test his faith, not punishment for his sin. He is an innocent man suffering. There is such a category of innocent suffering. He protests time and time again, as you've seen, that he is innocent. Despite the analysis of his three friends who come supposedly to comfort him and to burden him, with their analysis, which is, as it's been described in the series, karma, that if you receive bad things in life, it's because you deserve it. And Job will not surrender to that. This is not his experience. And it leads him to the place where he questions God. I'm innocent. And why does a God who is just allow suffering? Why does that happen? How can that be? What sort of God is he? Job believed that God owed him an explanation. 
both of his own suffering and suffering generally. And so he puts God in the dock. And that's where he gets to at the end of chapter 31. He's thrown down the challenge. Where are you? Come on. Tell me, tell me what your answer is to these questions that I've brought to you. And then in chapters 38 to 41 that we're looking at together this morning, an amazing thing happens. God speaks. God comes and speaks to Job. That's our focus today. And Job, as a result of that, recognizes that God is not just almighty, but he is good as well. And then at the end of the book, in a short chapter, God restores order. He corrects the three friends, he commends Job, and he confers new family and fortune on Job. And there, if you like, is the Job 101 summarized for you, if you've missed. But what I recommend is if you have missed, go back and you can get the, the recordings on the website here, which I thoroughly recommend to you. But today our focus is on the idea that, well, it does take a lot of, a lot of believing that God speaks. That's what the text tells us, God speaks. I mean, can't you really believe that if there is a God who is the creator, sustainer, and sovereign of the universe, that he communicates that he speaks, that he wants to engage with us. Can you really take that idea seriously? Do you believe that? Well, that, of course, is the, the whole premise of what the Bible is about. The Bible claims to be a revelation by God as to who he is, who we are, how this cosmos came to be, what its purpose and function is, how life should be lived, and when it's not lived aright, what happens? It describes the mess that our world is in. But it's not simply a, a, a criticism from a distance that God looks on from afar and says, you've messed it up, though we have. This revelation from God goes beyond that diagnosis of the problem to provide a solution. God speaks in various ways through creation, through the design, through the order of the universe. God speaks in Scripture, and supremely, the Bible says, He spoke when God the Son put on skin and came among us so that we could watch Him, listen to Him, see how He engages with children and outcasts of his society. See how he, at cost to himself, is willing to go and become the innocent sufferer, taking in his body the penalty for the corruption in the world. So the Bible is and claims to be God speaking to our world. It has a plot line. It has a, a scheme to it. There is one magnificent intellect behind it who inspired all of it over many years through different writers and different genres of literature, 
but it coheres, it fits, it tells a united, significant story of God and our world and how it will end. And here, within these chapters, 38 and following, I'm going to be reading some passages. If you've got a text, I invite you to find it. I notice that there are some ESV copies in some of the pews, and I think it's page 443 from memory is where we'll be picking up the text if you have access to one of those. But what God does here is He graciously speaks, and because of his grace in speaking, there are three points that Job takes away. I love that takeaway with the pizza. I was disappointed that I didn't take any of it away with me. But let me just call up that slide if we can. These three points that Job takes away. There we are. I'm trying to jump ahead to let you know where we're headed and then I'll take you there. But after God speaks, Job realizes that he is a creature in a universe that is complex, large, but fallen. It's not the way God initially made it. The problem of evil and wickedness has come in. And he, Job, is but a creature in this complex world. The fall, the the brokenness is because God has built into it, baked into it, the reality of freedom. When you give moral beings the choice of obeying or disobeying, when it's a real choice, as it was and is, then people make bad choices. I do, and so do you. And that is the history of the human race. And it's the Bible's diagnosis that God made a perfect world and put moral agents into it, the first human beings, and gave them a choice to obey and live in relationship with him, but they decided to reject exercising that freedom he gave them, and they went off into rebellion and disobedience and chaos that they brought with them in their wake. And Job comes to see that he is a creature, God is the creator, in this complex fallen universe. And as a creature, He's not just fallen, he is finite. No matter how clever you are, there are things you don't know. And the really smart people are the ones that realize how little they know. And Job comes to see that he simply does not have the kit. He doesn't have the mental equipment in order to comprehend all that is going on in God's universe. He can't understand the total picture. And then thirdly, he sees, it's not just that he can't understand. The moral sense that he has that is implanted within him by God, the New Testament makes that clear, that God places within us a conscience, a sense of what is right and wrong, that when we take that sense, that moral compass, and try and judge God by this moral compass that he's put within us, we simply don't have the credentials to judge God. That was the mistake that he was in danger of making. In fact, he repents of it because he did make that mistake. So he would say to Mr. Fry, if he had the chance, 
I understand you looking around and seeing that the world is troubled, that the world has features in it that are disturbing, offensive, wrong. I understand that. But God's not to blame. And you're not in a position to judge God. You simply don't have the credentials. Because to judge God means that you are claiming moral superiority over Him. You're claiming to be better than God. You're claiming to be more moral than God. For you to say that God is wrong means you're right and you know more and you're better and better placed to make the decision. And Job comes to see. Finite fallen creature that he is, he simply does not have the credentials to judge God. So let's come to the text. God speaks in two rounds. We pick it up in chapter 38, verse 1, page 443 of your church text, if you have it. I'm reading from the ESV. And here what God does is he asks Job for his credentials. He's asking two questions. Who are you? Excuse me, but who are you? You're the one who brings me into this courtroom scene. The language is that of a courtroom scene. You're the one who effectively, if I might paraphrase it, you're the one who summonses me to court to question me. Can I ask, if I might politely, who are you to summons me? And then on the question of morality and justice, he asks the question in verse 3, are you fit to educate me? What college, what qualifications, what experience, what moral knowledge do you have that allows you to sit in the judgment seat upon the God of the cosmos? So let's come to the first speech. 38, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. This is God speaking. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then what he does is, in verse 4, for the rest of this chapter and for some time afterwards, he bombards Job with a series of questions. When I was a student, I was taught through what is called the Socratic method, where the, the tutors would ask questions, and you would stumble to give an answer, and then that answer would be dissected, and you would try and give another answer, and then that would be dissected. And what God is doing here is asking a series of questions in order to expose the lack of knowledge that Job has. So let's pick up the theme of it. We'll not read all of them, but just see what he does. Verse 4. Uh, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you've understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who led its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? 
When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Verse 18, Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Verse 31, looking to the stars above, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or lose the cords of Orion, these star formations in the skies? 33, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? 36, he comes now closer to us. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Let me pause. Scientists are struggling to understand what the mind is, let alone how it works and what's in it or where it is or what it is. And God says, did you give understanding to the mind, Joe? 39, he now turns to the animal kingdom. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions? 41, who provides for the raven its prey? And then in chapter 39, he goes on with the same theme. Verse 9, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Verse 19, do you give the horse his might? And what he does is, beginning with the cosmos, as we saw, the foundation of the planets and all that is there in these many, many un spotted, unknown stars and constellations and galaxies. Did you do all that, Joe? Were you there at the, the design stage? When did you arrive at the team? Did you join the project at some later? Were you at the start? Did you help with the foundation? Were you there? And from the stars, he moves to the seas and the oceans. If you go through the text, you'll see he describes the sun and light, weather patterns, Oh, if only there was someone who could control the weather patterns. The mind, as we saw, animals to be fed and managed. So what God is saying to him is, by a series of questions, who are you? God is showing himself as the creator, sustainer of the cosmos. It is broken. It is fallen. It is not as he designed it, not as he created it, because evil has come in. There is space for rebellion, and we have taken advantage of that space, and we have introduced rebellion and suffering. And Job is but a, a creature in God's universe that is bigger and more complex than Job ever imagined. So that hymn that we sang before I got up was well chosen. Who? It's inspired by this chapter in Job. Who is the one who unleashes, who controls all of these things? And the outcome, let's go to see chapter 40, verses 1 to 5, to see how God brings this first round to a close. Chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. 
What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job concedes. He's no standing before God to climb up, to criticize him, to pass an assessment on him. He is a creature made by God in a setting, in a cosmos that God brought into being, sustains, and rules as sovereign and moral governor. And it's way above Job's pay grade. And so he realizes the only proper response is silence, to bow and understand something of God's grandeur and majesty and greatness and power. The danger with that, of course, is that it looks like might is right. It looks like all God has done is come along and bullied Job into submission. Has he really answered the question of justice yet? God has demonstrated that he has power, that he has control over the universe. I'm not sure that was Job's real problem. The question really is, what sort of a God is he? Is he just a God who is strong and mighty and powerful that, that demands me to fall before him and to submit and surrender because I can do nothing else? What's the quality of this God? What's the heart of this God? What's his moral essence? And so now, in round two, picking up in chapter 40, verse 6, God speaks again. And if I were to summarize it, I would do it this way, that life is complex, Job. You understand that now. And while you can see and appreciate that, and you can see that things are wrong, Job, tell me, does it need fixing? And if it needs fixing, can you fix it? Can you sort it? Are you, Job, just a, a critic without power? Are you alive to the problem but without a solution? And in particular, by what right, by what morality, by what standard do you assess? So let's come to the text, Job 40, verse 6. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it, you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And there's the heart of it. Do you really think, Joe, that you've got the moral superiority over me? That you have the credentials to condemn God? 
Verse 9. Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. And there's the trick. There's the catch. You can see the proud, Job. You can see this problem. But can you sort it? Can you abase the proud? Can you bring the mighty ones down and bring justice to them. Verse 12. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God is not a tyrant saying, how dare you ask me these questions? He's saying, the questions you ask, do you really understand what you're saying? Do you really understand what they mean? When you sit in judgment on me as to how I have allowed things to happen in your life, you're really saying that you know more than I do and that you are better than I am. The application is not hard to find. How easy it is for us under pressure, in pain or difficulty, disappointment, frustration, whatever it is, and all of us face that. All of us. It's very easy in such times to criticize, even politely, God, why didn't you let that happen the way I wanted it? If you really were good and looking after me, you would have given me that promotion. You wouldn't have let my loved one contract that illness. You wouldn't have allowed this awful thing. To, if you really loved me, and if you really cared for me, you would have given me more money better gifts, a better place. If you really cared for me, you would have. And once we start thinking like that, as Job was, what he's really saying is, A, I know better than you do, and I'm morally superior to you, God, and you messed up. So there's the challenge. And then what he does is he introduces us to two magnificent and curious beasts. Verse 15, Behemoth, and the start of the next chapter, Leviathan. Time forbids me saying very much, but let me draw something out of this, because when you read it, you'll see that Behemoth is a poetical description of a hippopotamus, the magnificent creatures. I've had the privilege of watching them in a, in a river in Kenya, and they have a very pleasant life. They spend the hot part of the day under the water blowing bubbles, and they have a great time. And no one, no one interferes with them, corrals them, rebukes them. And the point of this poetry, as you read it, you will see is that in Job's day, everyone was terrified. This was the biggest, bravest, toughest thing around. You didn't mess with a hippo, and you still should. And the point God makes is, He's a creature I made. 
you can't control him. Now, if you can't control him and get him to do what you want, what right do you think you have to sit in judgment on me? Leviathan chapter 41 is a very strange and intriguing beast. It looks like a description of a crocodile. The idea of the term Leviathan was a term that was used in pagan culture at the time for a, a monster, a monstrous animal resembling a dragon, fearsome. And in the Old Testament, the Leviathan turns up in five different references, a couple here in Job, this chapter, and also in chapter 3, Leviathan turned up, verse 8. But you also find him referenced in Isaiah 27 and Psalm 74. And what seems to be in play here is this, that just as you can't control the hippo or the crocodile, if they're just animals, they're not really the thing that you take on a leash for a walk, and that's one of the humorous references the writer makes. You don't do that. But beyond the mere animal, the Leviathan had come to represent and symbolize evil and forces of power and darkness and chaos that terrify human beings. And what God is saying to him in terms, there are these forces that are real and dark and difficult, and you have no purchase on them. You can't control them. They're greater than you, and they terrify you. And if you can't control the beasts, the crocodile, or the hippo, and if you can't control these deep forces that are all around you and causing such chaos in the world, who are you? What right do you have to judge me? Look at verse 10 and 11 of chapter 41. You'll see the key coming through here. Speaking of Leviathan, he says, does God, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Who has superior morality to God? No one. And the outcome of this second round you'll find in chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. Let me read that to you. 42, 1 to 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he quotes the first of the two questions God had posed in chapter 38, verse 2. You might find in some translations they're in inverted commas because this is Job quoting the question that God had put to him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? End of question. And then his answer. I've uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then the second question is put back by Job to God, 
you asked me here and I will question you, you said God, and you will make it known to me. Remember that question, God, chapter 38, verse 3. Well, here's my answer. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He answers these two questions. I spoke more than I knew. I spoke out of ignorance. I lacked understanding, and I am not fit to educate you. I'm not in a position to judge you. I had heard about you. I had that degree of knowledge of you. But now I see you. Not just by reputation, but I see the heart that you have and the quality of the God that you are, and I repent. So how do we pull this together? Well, questions to God and lament when we're overtaken by terrible things are entirely appropriate. Job's mistake was to put God in the dock and expect God to, and require God to give an explanation. God is God, and we are not. But thanks to God's grace and the speeches, he came to see that he is but a, a creature in the hands of a creator. And while he can't understand the whole picture and doesn't have the moral credentials to judge God, he has come to see that God is not just all-powerful, but is the one who is all-good. If you go back in your text to the few verses before chapter 38, before God spoke, you'll see that one of the, the friends, the fourth friend, the young one, Elihu, the cocky young man, at least got this right. It's chapter 37, verse 23. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. And that, as an orthodox statement, is right. God is a God who is great, not just in power, but also righteousness and justice. And Job had come to see that Although he didn't know everything, he knew now the one who did have everything in his hands, and he was worthy of trust. And that's the commitment of faith, not to understand everything, though we should do our best to understand what we can, but there's always got to be space for mystery and recognizing there are some things we don't and can't and never will understand. But God is still God. And God is still good. And what Job comes to is that position of confidence, trust, reliance on God. I may not see everything he's doing. I may not understand all he has in plan, but I know his heart. And when I can't understand, I know his heart is still for me. And that's Job's position. 
It's the faith position. It's the Bible's faith position towards God that God requires of us. He who comes to God must believe that he is and a rewarder of those who seek him. God always operates on the faith principle. He spoke to a man called Abraham and he said, come, leave everything and go to where I'll take you. I'm not telling you where, but listen to the promises I'll make. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In the New Testament, the same theme is taken up that God's way of dealing with people has always been on the faith principle. He doesn't have an alternative. So that in Romans chapter 3, in a passage described by Leon Morris as the most important paragraph ever written, Paul brings these things together and explains that if you're concerned about justice and will there be eventual retribution? Will there be a settling of scores? Will God put it right? Is he that sort of God? I'm not just interested in trusting a God who's all-powerful if he's not also all-good. Stephen Fry was railing at the God who doesn't exist. I don't believe in that God either. God is not a capricious God, as he described in that interview. God is a God of utter morality and virtue and righteousness. How do I know that? I know it when I go to April 30, outside Jerusalem, a naked man hanging on a cross, who is the very Son of God in human flesh enduring the venom, the cruelty, the opposition of all around as an innocent sufferer. If you want an innocent sufferer, there is the innocent sufferer. But not only was he suffering, he was, as the New Testament tells us in Romans 3, God was punishing him instead of us. And in that transaction, God was demonstrating that he is just and he cares about morality and wrong and he will punish it correctly, fully, without any compromise. And that's what the cross is about. But he's also the God of infinite love, grace and compassion. So that Paul can say he is both the one who is just and the one who justifies, who forgives those who have faith in Christ Jesus. That's the Bible model, and Job got it. He looked forward to his Redeemer, and his Redeemer did come, and stood outside Jerusalem, weeping over it, hung on a cross outside the city so that he could in his own body receive the penalty for all the corruption and wickedness and darkness and evil that we have brought into the world and we allow in our lives. And he took that fully in himself. God himself gave himself to save us from himself is how John Stott puts it. And there is justice. There is suffering. It's not a satisfactory answer to everyone, but it's the Bible's answer to it. This is the God of Job, the God of all who faithfully follow, 
recognizing God is great and God is good. And blessed be his name forever. Let's pray. Father God, we bow before you. We will not multiply words. We simply say, you are worthy of praise and glory and honor. You are worthy of our trust. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the spirit who has come to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, to rebirth us and bring us into your family. Great triune God, we bow before you and adore you. Amen.